This podcast is brought to you by Erickson Immigration Group. Welcome to Immigration Nerds. Today, well, fortunately, we have a full house. Uh, joining with us are the authors and researchers of Migration Policy Institute's recent report, COVID-19 in the State of Global Mobility in 2020, Senior Policy Analyst Jana Batalova, as well as Policy Analyst Kate Hooper. Pleasure to have you guys on. Great. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having us. Yes, and also joining with me for the first time on Immigration Nerds, this is a big deal, uh, is our lead researcher, Luke Bianca. I'm very excited to join for the, the first time. I'm looking forward to the conversation. I'm happy to have you two on. Uh, we, we get a lot of questions on the state of migration in a COVID world, and you laid out the impact from a geopolitical standpoint. You gave statistical analysis, and the disproportionate effects upon asylum seekers and those who are displaced, uh, which is a, a narrative we don't get to hear from often. So to kick this off, what were some key questions or ideas that your team was trying to solve that eventually led up to deciding to write this paper? So we had a unique opportunity working with uh, the organization uh, International Organization for Migration, IOM, looking at how governments responded to new cases, to rising cases in one part of the country, or one part of the world versus uh, versus another. So they, they were tracking meticulously uh, over time, uh, travel restrictions, various uh, health measures. This unique data set allowed us to really understand how countries responded to the global pandemic. And usually, you know, Ian, I'm, I'm a, a, a quantitative researcher and I was delighted to work mm-hmm. with data like that because usually we have data that is kind of behind trends two by two or three years. Uh, the data that I, I am collected through the mobility tracking database capturing the trends as they were occurring. So that was a fantastic data set to work with to get a a comprehensive picture of how the pandemic affected global mobility in terms of numbers, in terms of impacts, in terms of populations and groups and countries that were affected the most that we would have not known without uh, data that tracked these developments so closely. Right. Uh, I I know Luke has a follow up, but real quickly, was there anything when you're going through the data uh, in terms of mobility or or certain trends that were particularly surprising to find? As we started Hmm. looking at the data on travel restrictions, right, which countries uh, were no longer eligible to come or under which conditions they were eligible to come. What we found is that uh, in the first phase, like in the spring of 2020, all countries fairly quickly after the announcement COVID-19 as as a global pandemic, they quickly went into that, the mobility lockdown mode. Like my, my code name for that period is like, pressing the panic button um, uh, very quickly yes. <laughs> across across yeah. the world. Panic button, close the yeah. borders. 
Um, that button was definitely pressed. Yes. <laughs> that was definitely, definitely pressed. Every really, country pressed the button. Every yeah. country pressed the button. And so the, the kind of the approach was, was better error on the restriction than not. Mm-hmm. However, what was so interesting about at the moment is that despite the, the appearance of you know, shut borders across the world, there were a lot of exceptions to, to those restrictions. So uh, nationals and their family members, uh, residents and their family members, uh, um, workers who worked for the international organizations, diplomats were exempt from these restrictions. And that kind of created the, the, the flow of people that was still, was still able to, to move despite the global you know, rush to, to close the borders. And some countries uh, started lifting these restrictions much faster and on a bigger scale, whereas other countries still stick to, to their uh, rather restricted policy of mobility. And let me just give you two examples. The Caribbean nations, uh, island nations, began lifting restrictions much faster than other countries on the one hand. And on the other hand, we have two other island nations, Australia and and New Zealand. And their policy, their take was completely different. They were uh, still uh, maintaining their borders fairly close. That was in sharp contrast with other countries that began to uh, open up uh, to tourists in some cases adding more and more categories to their exempt exemption list uh, of uh, exemption from the travel restrictions list. And so we see a, like a, a widening gap in terms of, of approaches that governments are taking. And the way the way I see the last period is that countries accumulated more knowledge, both on their own experience and uh, other countries' experience in terms of their reaction to the news. Like in the, if when we look at in January, February of 2020, it took a long time for countries to start reacting to the news of rising cases. Uh, in the fall of 2020, that reaction was much, much, much quicker. The body of knowledge is, lear- is growing and countries are using that to make hopefully better decisions going forward because there are a lot of uncertainties that future global mobility remain. Um, Mm -hmm. so let me stop here and that's yeah (laughs) no no you gave a a full synopsis of how we've made our our transition and Kate I know that you work on global mobility trends what has been your sense of the (laughs) the past year in terms of trends any interesting findings or just overall key takeaways so quite an easy question (laughs) (laughs) um Yeah, I mean, I think just to reiterate Jana's point, I think the value of this report is that it really provides sort of granular detail on what different countries did and provides a really useful historical record. So I think it challenges some of the assumptions that we had um, as all of these events were unfolding, like the conception that that, um, mobility basically stopped, for example, I think is really challenged by this report that shows that a lot of restrictions were in place, but people continue to move under some circumstances. So I think that that's really the value of this report is that it injects that nuance into our analysis of the last, you know, 12, 15 months and shows, you know, how 
how responses have changed over time and the disruptions that we've seen, and also some of the sort of shifts, say from say a blanket ban on people arriving to much more of a sort of individualized um, measure where you require sort of the individual traveler to meet certain standards, but in theory be able to move. So I think that that's really the value for me of this report. And I think it's a really, really useful addition as well. In terms of the broader sort of consequences of the last 12 months, you know, I think it's just this scale of disruption and some of the, you know, impacts and mobility that we've seen. I think if you were to take the last, you know, year and go back in time to 2019 and tell people that, you know, mobility would shut down for many people in many circumstances, that even within free movement areas, we'd see massive disruptions to your ability to move. I think it would, you know, it's just unfathomable. We've just seen such a disruption to, you know, the circumstances under which people can move um, and continued uncertainty. You know, I think that even though we've seen a shift over the last year from blanket travel bans to, you know, the use of health measures, there's still a huge amount of uncertainty. The arrival of these new variants, for example, we've seen countries reintroduce restrictions for people traveling from certain countries. And I think it just illustrates that even as we start moving towards you know, conversations about health measures and possible vaccine certificates, for example, there's still a huge amount of uncertainty about you know, whether you will actually be able to move, you know, whether when you're in another country, you'll be able to return easily, what the conditions for you moving are, you know, are you going to have to quarantine, are you not going to have to quarantine? I think that that uncertainty will continue for the foreseeable future. So I think that that's really, that sort of disruption is really my takeaway. Um, I can also talk a little bit about some of the impacts, I guess, on demand for migration. I think that one assumption that we have is that when, you know, COVID-19 has become, you know, either eradicated or managed, so people are widely vaccinated and it's not the same sort of public health threat that it currently is, that migration will go back to normal. So but what I mean by that is that it might return to sort of pre-pandemic levels and trends. And I think that that's still a big question mark for our work. You know, are we going to see people moving under the same circumstances for the same reasons from the same places to the same destinations? And I think that that's a bit of a question mark. You know, we now see migration corridors being rooted in epidemiological conditions as much as anything else. Um, and some major migration corridors are still largely closed if you're looking to move for work or study or for, you know, even short-term travel like business. Um, and, you know, over time, some of these trends might become sticky. If it's become much easier to recruit someone from one country than another country, and that's been the case for say two years, there's no real guarantee that you know pre-migration trends would sort of win out in that circumstance or whether that might therefore be a longer disruption. Um, and we may also just see some lasting changes in demands for workers. On the one hand, we've seen the pandemic really prove our reliance on essential workers in some sectors. You know, countries have gone to great lengths to try and recruit agricultural workers from other countries because they've realized that they are really key for their workforce there. But in other circumstances, you know, employers may rethink when they need to recruit um, migrant workers and whether there are substitutes from their local workforce, you know, brings up that question of, um, you know, the extent to which you can invest in upskilling local workers. And that's certainly a conversation that's happening in countries like New Zealand, where immigration remains really, really difficult. Um, but yeah, so we, we may end up seeing some longer trends here. You know, another factor, of course, is remote work. A lot of people have switched to working remotely for 
um, you know, nearly a year now. And so that might also have some lasting effects in certain sectors where if a workplace continues to, you know, hire people remotely, um, you know, will that mean that you're looking to recruit people to relocate permanently? Or does that open up new possibilities for you to say, hire someone who works in a different part of the country or even in a different country and they don't necessarily have to relocate in the same way? So I think there are a lot of question marks at this point about the lasting effects, but it has been a big disruption um, to, you know, migration as we know it. And I think that these disruptions will really sort of continue and potentially have quite lasting effects. Yeah, uh, as you were speaking, it was, it's, it's interesting that you make note that uh, this, da this data set allows you to kind of react in real time, almost as you're writing the report, um, because of the data that you're, you're receiving is so up to date, um, which is in, in fairly stark contrast to pretty much the entire year of 2020 has been very reactionary or was very reactionary because there simply wasn't data, both on the health side of things of how to effectively respond to uh, different virus concerns, but of course in the global mobility sphere as well. So how do you hope that other researchers and policymakers will utilize the findings of this report now that you do have this very well researched and analyzed data set um, to influence further research or further decisions to hopefully optimize the way that we respond to such crises moving forward? A very good question. So first of all, uh, the mobility tracking database um, is available online. So people can use the, the, the data to do their own analysis, focusing either on a particular country or the, you know, the set of countries, uh, regional mobility or uh, by national mobility. Um, so I would definitely encourage people to explore that and IOM continues to collecting uh, data. So we really hope that it will inform the policy responses. And uh, the other thing is like, the data on mobility in conjunction with data on COVID cases, both in terms of number of cases as well as number of deaths related. related. And so the, the, the various pieces of information can be put together to gain a better picture of the, the impacts and, and how countries and governments uh, re react. And so I encourage others definitely to explore and, and um, gain a, a better understanding. The report does a really good job of kind of breaking down uh, the distinction between movers and non-movers, which I think is a really fascinating contrast. Um, and you, you mentioned the kind of stickiness of some of these trends. I was thinking a lot while I read about kind of what is the precedent of nations being able to kind of flip a switch as to whether or not they are going to open their borders or close their borders uh, and what that means for lower priority migrants or, or less desirable migrants in the so-called like non-movers that are discussed. Um, and what is the precedent moving forward for nations who on one hand are, are seeking to recruit business travelers or tourism, while on the other hand, kind of systematically restrict the movement of asylum seekers or, or um, refugees or migrants who uh, are seen as kind of less desirable or less willing to, to cater to? We are still in a very uncertain and difficult situation with regard to this, this population because now uh, there is a new uh, angle to that is the uh, ability to obtain a recognizable vaccine record, right? And we are here talking about both in terms of 
well, three levels. A, can you get a vaccine? B, can you prove that you have a vaccine that will be accepted by, by other countries? And C, in some cases, that is your vaccine recognized by other countries? Uh, with the proliferation of vaccines, not all vaccines are recognized as effective by, by all countries. So here we have the populations, um, asylum seekers, in, uh, internally displaced populations, uh, as well as migrant workers, the lo lower skilled migrant workers, uh, who, whose, whose mobility is extremely restricted. And it's unclear when they will be able to move even, even if countries start opening uh, the, uh, the channels or widening rather the opportunities for migration because they might not have access to, to the vaccines which will become the defining feature of can you move or not go, going forward. And there are international efforts led by UN and IOM really to not to forget those populations and, and push other countries to recognize that the, the need for humanitarian protection did not decrease during COVID. It just increased by a factor of you know, five and 10. Um, and, and so there is definitely an, a great awareness on the part of international organizations I mean, going back to Luke's question, I think that there are a few distinctions to make when we're thinking about the sort of uneven opportunities to move. So one is between channels. So I think that we're likely to see countries focus on some channels over others. So, you know, economic channels are probably going to be prioritized over other things like um, family reunification, for example. So we may see, you know, governments making a little bit more effort to try and focus on certain channels over other channels. Another distinction to make as well is um, the mode of travel. So it's much easier to open up um, air travel, for example. If you think about it, airlines already do a lot of checks before you can even get on a plane. Like we push those borders out. So when you're flying with um, an airline, they will check your passport. They'll check that you know you meet all the immigration requirements before you even step on the plane. So adding additional health measures there is much simpler than at a land border. Where in some contexts, you know, if we're, if we're looking, say, at West Africa, for example, some of these land borders are quite porous. So you're not necessarily sure that everyone is coming through as a formal border crossing. But it's also just like a volume thing and people are right there. So you have to build up this infrastructure to start doing all of these, you know, either tests or, you know, reviewing people's health documents. And it's just a much bigger undertaking. So it is more straightforward to open up air travel than it is to open up land travel, which is why we've seen much more progress on the former than the latter. But that also has indirect implications for things like asylum, because normally an asylum seeker has to physically reach the territory of a destination country in order to file an asylum claim. So if you are unable to fly, um, as many asylum seekers are, um, without a visa, for example, then your only real option is to sort of cross by land. And if land borders remain closed, then that curtails your ability to seek protection as a result. So I think that's why, you know, opportunities for some types of travelers are going to be much easier than other types of travelers, even setting aside things like vaccine certificates, which as Jana says, you know, will really, really vary. I mean, a lot of these conversations are ongoing, but things like uneven access to vaccines are going to be a real factor. And we haven't yet seen countries say only vaccinated travelers can enter. But what we have seen is that it's going to be much 
easier and cheaper for vaccine vaccinated travelers to enter. So each country varies, but for example, some of the conversations about vaccination certificates means that if you have a vaccination certificate, you might be able to skip quarantine, which you know can go up for up to you know 10 days, 14 days, and be really expensive for the traveler and also have implications for whether it's even practical for you to travel if you have to quarantine on both ends of the journey. And it's also expensive, you know, if you have to go and pay for a quarantine or split the quarantine costs with someone else or, you know, say your employer or the government, that's a very costly undertaking. And vaccination certificates might also mean that you don't have to sort of meet the same testing requirements. And even securing a PCR test for COVID-19 can be really expensive. So while it doesn't mean that if you, so if you're vaccinated, it doesn't mean that you won't be, that you will be able to travel and that other people won't be able to travel necessarily. It does mean that it's going to be quicker and cheaper and that therefore much more accessible than for other categories of travelers who haven't necessarily been vaccinated. Right. That, that's a, a great point in terms of the access, right, to whether it's testing, uh, vaccinations, and what type of vaccinations, whether it will be accepted or not. And um, obviously what we do, we work with global talent, right? A, a global workforce. With uh, COVID-19, it makes for certain regions more difficult to have access to that type of care. We, especially here in America, we pride ourselves on finding the best and brightest <laughs> from around the world. Uh, I wonder how you guys see how the global workforce will be impacted by this. Let's say you have a great talent in Sri Lanka, but they don't have the specific vaccine that is acceptable or they don't have access to the care or the funds for travel. Um, I, I think there is a, a world where the talent that's out there might miss out. I think that's probably a reasonable assumption. You know, the reality is that opportunities to travel are going to really vary for the foreseeable future, both in terms of accessibility and things like costs. Um, and I think that, you know, this is going to likely impact, you know, employers' decisions about which workers they choose to sponsor through immigration channels. You know, going back to the yeah. point about vaccinations, for example, you know, in many high income countries, they are on track to vaccinate their populations by the end of 2021. But in some lower middle income countries, we're talking about 2022, 2023, 2024 on current estimates. Wow. And so, you know, yeah. there's a lot of work happening to try and improve access to vaccines for low and middle income countries. But there is going to be a significant lag. And if it is easier for an employer to sponsor a worker from country A than it is from country B, it's hard to see how to bridge the gap without, you know, government intervention or some other type of intervention that could sort of make it basically narrowed down the cost differential there. It will also depend a lot on the type of work, right? Because some work can be done now remotely, right? As we all learned the hard way that a lot of work can be done uh, remotely and, and a lot of employers are even rethinking their strategies in terms of whether and to which degree to bring their workers back to the office. But uh, some types of work re require 
physical presence of people uh, working in the lab on the development of the next vaccine. It's very hard to do that type of work remotely. And, and, and so the value of having access to global talent is that it's not only just an individual, is is that the, those smart people working together, amplifying their contributions to research and development. So it would depend also in terms of like who would be the losers and winners from that point of view. And it in part, it's yet to be seen because of so many other factors that will play out. At the moment, we, we, we can only speculate right. about that. Yeah, yeah, I just what comes to mind is thinking, well, there should be some sort of global standard just to mm -hmm. make uh, mobility much easier and, and transacting between uh, different countries. Hopefully, I'm not sure if Migration Policy Institute is working on something like that, but you know, <laughs> uh, that's something that will come to mind. I mean, I think that's the end goal is that we end up seeing global standards around things like testing, vaccination certificates, and other types of digital health records, but it just takes a very long time to negotiate. So at the moment, what we're seeing is a number of privately led initiatives and we're also seeing some um, you know, government-led initiatives, whether that's happening on a national basis, so a government will announce a new vaccination certificate, or on a regional basis. So in the European context, we're seeing negotiations at the moment around the digital green certificate, which would bring together a sort of digital health record that records whether someone's been vaccinated, whether they've recently been infected with COVID-19 and recovered, so they've got some sort of immunity, or whether they've, you know, passed a COVID-19 test. And so we're seeing all of this action on the national level, on the regional level, and then also, you know, by led by private sector actors. But the big question is how to make sure that all of these um, activities are interoperable. So, you know, for example, if you look at um, some of the negotiations around travel bubbles, there have been conversations between, um, you know, Australia and, and I think it's Singapore, and one challenge is, you know, if Singapore is, is, you know, pursuing a particular type of vaccination certificate, how do you ensure that that's going to be interoperable with what Australia is doing? Or in a European context, you know, the EU is pushing forward on this digital green certificate. But, you know, how do you potentially extend that once you're talking about non-EU travellers? You know, is there a way to sort of expand that beyond the sort of realm of Europe itself? So the sort of global coordination piece is going to be really important to make sure that all of these different systems that are going to spring up on a national and regional level can speak to each other. And so if you're opening up inter-regional migration, making sure that these systems all kind of feed in together, but it's going to take time, it always does. You know, I think that that's the end goal, but for now we may end up seeing sort of lots of different systems that become quite difficult to navigate. Um, and, you know, having to have some quite technical conversations about you know building the infrastructure to read these different records understand what they capture and what they don't capture how to collect some of these data and share them um, in a way that sort of meets local um, data privacy concerns and so that that conversation will come but i think for now we're probably going to see more activity on the regional level and i think that one thing that the report makes clear is that over 2020, those populations absolutely were left very far behind and exacerbated a lot of underlying trends of migration with regards to kind of winners and losers that you pointed out. Um, that's my question would be, do you think that we'll look back on the year 2020 with regards to global mobility as a preview of kind of the decades to come when we're facing climate-induced migration? 
And will that mm -hmm. even further exacerbate some of the, the trends that we've seen this past year? Climate-induced migration has it, its own uh, both economic and political challenges and implications. But what I was thinking about as we were working on the report is, are we going to be better prepared for the next mm. pandemic? One thing that we did learn from, from the work is that countries that experienced uh, significant public crises, such as SARS, um, they were prepared better to tackle uh, the, the issues. They were able to uh, ramp up their infrastructure and, and mount a better response than countries that were, were completely unprepared. So I hope that the, the body of knowledge that we accumulate, have begun accumulating, will, will really serve as a, as a way to, to learn how to react as an international, international community to the future, uh, future pandemics. Yeah, um, I would agree. I think yeah. that we'll see health measures continue to be a feature of immigration going forward. You know, I think one comparison that has been drawn by some analysts is to the sort of post 9-11 um, impact on travel and how you know, additional security measures really became a feature of immigration going forward. And I think that we can assume that health measures are going to be part of travel for the foreseeable future. As Jana says, climate related migration is quite different to this topic, but perhaps one comparison one could draw is that people will still move even if there are additional restrictions put in place. You know, we've seen that people have still tried to move when they've been escaping violence or disasters or, you know, economic um, pressures. And the danger of these restrictions is that if you don't allow people to move legally, um, they will still move, but they'll end up taking more dangerous routes or they'll end up relying on the services of smugglers and become more vulnerable as a result. And we've seen that happen um, linked to some of the restrictions that have been put in place to try and stop the spread of COVID-19 as a sort of unexpected trade-off. And there's a little bit of a parallel there with um, some of the climate related migration as well. If people don't have the ability to move, um, you know, so preemptively or sort of through orderly channels, that doesn't stop them from moving. It just means that the people who are moving end up facing more dangers and are at greater risk of exploitation. So perhaps that's one lesson that we could draw and apply to climate related migration as well. Right. And actually, in your report, it says like Africa, Asia, and Latin America found that 37% of migrants and refugees experience a greater demand for smugglers and their services given the increased difficulties of crossing borders. So um, those are some of the unattended consequences and, and side effects of this occurrence. So um, I just want to say thank you, uh, Jana and Kate, for, for coming on. Uh, give absolutely great information. And honestly, when it comes down to uh, decision-making on, on a policy level, um, we need the data that you guys work so hard to gain. And so we can have a better view of the landscape and so we can make the most informed decisions uh, possible uh, as, as nations and um, on a global level as well. So I, I appreciate your time. Thanks so much, Ian. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. Follow Immigration Nerds on Twitter at IMMNerds and Erickson Immigration Group on LinkedIn to join in the conversation. I'm Ian Gaines. See you next week.